0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, Ezra, chapters 6 and 7. It is a, a fascinating, it's a unique style of the Holy Bible to thoroughly, carefully and sometimes expansively document God's instructions to a prophet or to a king or to his people in general as with the law of Moses but then instead of elaborating on his worshippers doing what God ordained it merely stated that they did it and so We find that to be the case with the rebuilding of the the Holy Temple. After much dramatic build-up in the first few chapters of Ezra as for the need for a new temple, the unsettling political circumstances surrounding the delay in building it, God's great displeasure with the Jews' procrastination and hand-wringing, which he viewed as a lack of sincerity and repentance, suddenly... In chapter 6, we hear that in keeping with the command of God, the Judahites got back to work and finished it. No fanfare, no details, no glorification of those who participated. Only a matter-of-fact record that it was built. And then what immediately followed? its reconstruction. So, let's continue in Ezra chapter 6 by rereading part of it. We're going to start at verse 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that would be page 1124. 1124. Then Tatnai, the governor of the territory beyond the river, Star <clears throat> Boznai and their colleagues obeyed strictly because Daryavesh the king had given the order to do so. Now the leaders of the Judeans made good progress with the rebuilding thanks to the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They kept building until they were finished in keeping with the command of the God of Israel and in accordance with the order of Koresh, Daryavesh, and Artaxastah that's Cyrus, Darius, and uh, Artaxerxes kings of Persia. This house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the 6th year of the reign of Dariavesh the king. The people of Israel, the Kohanim, the priests, and the Levites, and the other people from the exile joyfully de- dedicated this house of God. And at the dedication of this house of God, they offered a 100 young bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem as written in the book of Moses. Now the people from the exile kept Pesach, Passover, on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. So they slaughtered the Pesach lambs for all the people from the exile and for their kinsmen the Kohanim and for themselves. The people of Israel who had returned from the exile and all those who had renounced the filthy practices of the nations living in the land in order to seek Adonai the God of Israel ate the Passover lamb and joyfully kept the feast of Matzah for seven days. For Adonai had filled them with joy by turning the heart of the king of. Asher towards them, so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. After Tutnai, the vice-regent of the beyond-the-river province where Judah was located, had accomplished a thorough investigation to see if the Jews had the proper government authorization for the temple rebuilding project, he sent a letter to Persian king Darius outlining what it is he had observed. And he asked that the king would have the records libraries of the Persians gleaned to see if perhaps a written record from king Cyrus could corroborate or invalidate Zerubbabel's claims that king Cyrus had ordered that the Jews return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. Now indeed in the record city of Ekbektana, an official memorandum under King Cyrus' name was found that fully agreed with what Zerubbabel had told Tatnai. And so to add his own authority and personal stamp to the matter, as kings often do, King Darius informed Tatnai that not only were the Jews to be allowed to complete work on their temple, without interference or supervision by Persian government bureaucrats but that the beyond the river provincial district was to supply the Jews with the needed funds in addition to whatever was needed for ongoing daily operations. Now I'm sure that Zerubbabel and his companions could have been knocked over with a feather, that news. I mean, after all, to this point, they had been bullied, threatened, and completely frustrated for so many years in their efforts to build a new house of God. But this latest Persian king was even more enthusiastic and supportive of the Jews' rebuilding project than Cyrus. Not only was there complete absence of bigotry against them, it seems the king actually had some kind of a mysterious, unexplained admiration for the Jews. What else could this mean than it was the favor of the God of Israel to supernaturally cause the Gentile king of the most expansive empire that the world had ever known to show such kindness and concern for these worshippers of Jehovah? So here I'd like to remind us all that in Haggai chapter 2 God's favor was promised if only the Jews would take courage that they'd obey God and that they would build His temple. In Agai 2, 15-19 we read this. Now please, from this day on, keep this in mind. Before you begin laying stones on each other to rebuild the temple of Adonai, throughout the whole time, when someone approached a 20 measure pile of grain he found only 10 and when he came to the wine press to draw out 50 measures there were only 20 I struck you with blasting winds, mildew and hail on everything your hands produced but you still wouldn't return to me says Adonai so please keep this in mind from this day on from the 24th day of the ninth month from the day the foundation of Adonai's temple was laid consider this There is no longer any seed in the barn, is there? And the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate tree and the olive tree have produced nothing yet, right? However, from this day on, I will bless you. God kept His word. And as usual, He kept it in ways that neither Zerubbabel nor the prophets of and Zechariah could ever imagine. Who could have guessed that a Persian official would come to investigate the building project, once again throwing it all into doubt, but that the then current Persian king would enthusiastically support it to such a great extent that he even vowed a curse against anyone who might think to interfere with it. When God makes a promise, it's sealed. It will happen. God is the God of everyone, not just the Hebrews. And what a great comfort that ought to be to all of us. But the promise is also conditional on His people trusting Him, on being obedient, even in the face of opposition and challenge. Well, in the just the briefest of statements... The editor of Ezra says that once they began their work again, the Jews proceeded steadily and didn't stop until the temple was completed. We are throwing a little bit of a curve, however, in verse 14, when we're informed that while it was the God of Israel who was really behind the rebuilding, nonetheless, earthly kings were involved and they gave their approval. And the three kings listed were Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. Cyrus and Darius, well that makes sense as they're front and center in the whole story of rebuilding the temple. But why is Artaxerxes mentioned? We're going to be hearing about him in the next chapter of Ezra. But Artaxerxes came to power many years after the temple was completed. I searched through the recorded thoughts of many fine Bible scholars about the inclusion of Artaxerxes in this list, and frankly, none of them passed the smell test. At least not for me. Probably, the best and the most humble conclusion was by F. Charles Fensham, who, in his brilliant commentary on the book of Ezra, suggested that our modern logic is simply not the same as for those ancient Jewish writers. And while we can guess upon all manner of possibilities for Artaxerxes' name being mentioned here, none can be proven, that we find this same statement About Artaxerxes, not only in the Hebrew texts, but also in the Greek Septuagint, that was written nearly three centuries before Christ was born, says that there was likely no copyist error involved, nor have we created a poor modern English translation of the Hebrew words and somehow lost its meaning. The ancient editor is completely competent in his history, and he's accurate so far as any archaeological finds have ever proven. The appearance of the name Artaxerxes was intended, and it achieved some purpose that's just not clear to us. Well, verse fifteen explains that in the month of Adar, the twelfth month of the year, at least as concerns the Hebrew religious calendar, <clears throat> in the sixth year of Darius's reign, the temple was finished, and it was formally inaugurated into service. Now, since Ezra chapter four verse twenty-four says that the work on the temple was halted until sometime in the second year of Darius' reign, then we know that once the work began again, it took a little over four years to complete it. The year was 515 BC, at least by the modern Gregorian calendar. Now verse 17 gives us the tally of the sacrificial animals that were used and it also explains that 12 goats were offered up on behalf of Israel. Now we discussed last week that here we find the beginnings of Judah's belief that as of now they were and had the right to represent all 12 tribes of Israel even though historically and factually they only represented Judah and Benjamin. This pleasant fiction would become cemented into, Hebrew, into a Jewish tradition. And to this day, most Jews still hold to it, even though with the reemergence of the ten lost tribes, the fallacy of it is being exposed and generally it's not a very welcome discovery. Now after a purification ceremony and many sacrifices to ritually cleanse and consecrate the building into service. Next, the priests and the levites were purified and consecrated. The final words of verse 18 says the consecration was as written in the book of Moses, meaning that they would have followed the ritual purification laws of Exodus 29, Leviticus 8 and Numbers 3 and 8. Now, either by good fortune or by plan, month following the completion and dedication of the temple was the month of Nisan, the first month of the religious calendar year. So, they celebrated Pesach, Passover, on the Torah ordained day, the 14th. I want to give you a brief Hebrew grammar lesson that might add a little bit to your understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. Notice, take a look at it, Notice how verse 19 states that they celebrated Passover but then after that, verse 20 begins in most English translations including the complete Jewish Bible with the words for the priests and Levites had purified themselves. In Hebrew, the word that's almost always translated into English as for is key. Key. And that's what we find here. However, you see, key is a connecting word. When it's placed at the beginning of a sentence, it's meant to connect the action of that sentence to the previous one. So rather than how it kind of seems to us in our English translations that merely two separate facts were announced in these two verses, first fact... They celebrated Passover. Second fact, the priests and the Levites were ritually cleansed. What's really being conveyed is that they celebrated Passover because the priests and the Levites had been purified. In other words, if they had not gotten around to purifying the Levites and the priests yet, then they could not have celebrated Passover. So, for those of you who study Biblical Hebrew, just remember that most of the time we'd be better off translating key as meaning because or due to rather than for. The meaning of verses 29, 19 and 20 then extends, got a little ahead of myself there, extends then to verse 21. As it begins, so they slaughtered the Pesach lambs for all the people. In other words, because the Levites and the priests were made ritually clean and they were ordained into service, that's what allowed them to be able to slaughter the lambs that were the central feature of Passover. If they couldn't slaughter the lambs at the temple, they couldn't do Passover. Well, this is a small change, but it adds significant meaning in that nothing could happen at the temple until the priests and the Levites had been ritually purified. The text continues that all the people who had returned from exile along with All those who had renounced the filthy practices of the nations living in the land joined together in eating the Passover lambs. This is referring to two groups of people. The returning Jews, and also some others whose identity is somewhat ambiguous. We've already learned that many Jews were left in Judah by Nebuchadnezzar to be caretakers. And that many of these had intermarried with Gentiles and or they began mixing the pagan worship of Gentiles who had moved into the land with their own Torah-based worship. Now I think that the idea is that this second group is inclusive of both of these situations. Whereby a person who had gone astray in some way now renounced those perverted ways to rejoin the purer ways that the Jewish leadership was attempting to reestablish. So they were allowed to participate in the feast of Pesach. And as the Torah commands, after eating the Pesach lamb, they celebrated the feast of Matzah that begins the next day, Nisan, also called Aviv, the 15th. Now, what I like is that the, uh, the emphasis is the joy with which they celebrated these springtime biblical feasts. Now, no doubt the joy comes from having been unable to celebrate them for so long but also because joy ought to be the tone that these feasts are celebrated in because they signify deliverance from from oppression, from slavery for the Jews of ancient times it was from the oppression of being slaves in Egypt and here later on from being captives in Babylon But for modern believers who make Yeshua the Lord of our lives we should celebrate these same feasts and do them with joy because we've been delivered from being slaves to sin and oppression from Satan into eternal fellowship with God. You know, I regret that it's been less than two decades since I finally came to understand that these so-called Jewish Feasts of Passover and leavened bread were for me too, as a Gentile believer. In fact, you know, by all rights, these feasts may now have even more meaning and purpose to me than to my near to my dear Jewish friends who aren't yet believers. Because I've appropriated the ultimate spiritual meaning of these feasts in Messiah, while they still observe them mostly as tradition. You know, I long to celebrate these feasts with my Jewish brethren in the same spirit. And I long for all Christians to see what a sad error it was to throw these God-ordained feasts out and then to replace them with shallow man-made customs. Let's move on to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, 1125, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. After these events, and during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia Ezra the son of Suriah, the son of Azariah the son of Hilkiah the son of Shalom the son of Zadok, the son of Achetuv, the son of Amariah the son of Azariah, the son of Merot, the son of Zerachiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Pinchas the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest. This Ezra Went up from Babel. He was a scribe, expert in the Torah of Moses, which Adonai the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him everything he asked for since the hand of Adonai his God was on him. In the seventh year of Artaxastha, Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the Kohanim Levites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple, temple servants went up to Jerusalem. Ezra arrived at Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. And he began going up to Jerusalem from Babel on the first day of the first month and arrived on the first day of the fifth month, since the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart on studying and practicing the Torah of Adonai and teaching Israel the laws and the rulings. Here is the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the Kohen and Torah teacher, the student of matters relating to Adonai's mitzvot, his commandments, and his laws for Israel. From Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Herewith I decree that everyone in my realm belongs to the people of Israel including their priests and levites who of his own free will will of his own free will chooses to go with you to Jerusalem should go You are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire how the law of your God, of which you have expert knowledge, is being applied in Judah and Jerusalem. You are also to bring with you the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have voluntarily offered offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you receive throughout the province of Babel, and the voluntary offerings of the people and the priests that have been offered willingly for the house of their God in Jerusalem. You are to spend this money carefully on young bulls, rams, lambs with your grain offerings and drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your kinsmen to do with the rest of the silver and gold do it according to the will of your God. The articles given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver them. To the God of Jerusalem, whatever else you may, uh, whatever else may be needed for the house of your God that you have to supply, you may supply from the royal treasury. I, Artaxata, the king, herewith order all the treasures in the territory beyond the river to do carefully anything Ezra the Cohen, scribe of the law of the God of Heaven, requires of you up to three and a third tons of silver, 500 bushels of wheat, 500 gallons of wine, 500 gallons of olive oil and unlimited amounts of salt. Whatever is ordered by the God of heaven is to be performed exactly for the house of the God of heaven. For why should wrath come against the realm of the king and his sons? Moreover, we herewith proclaim to you that it will be illegal to impose tribute, taxes, or tolls on any of the priests or Levites, singers, gatekeepers, servants, or laborers in this house of God. And you, Ezra, making use of the wisdom you have from your God, are to appoint magistrates and judges to judge all the people in the territory beyond the river, that is, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach those who don't know them Whoever refuses to obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed on him swiftly, whether it be death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. Blessed be Adonai, the God of our ancestors, who has put such a thing as this in the heart of the king to restore the beauty of the house of Adonai in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's most powerful officials. So I take courage since the hand of Adonai my God is on me and I gathered together out of Israel key men to go up with me. We take a significant leap in time between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 about 57 years chapter 7 begins at a time 458 BC that's well after the completion of the temple that was done back in 515 BC and the purpose of these final chapters of Ezra is to finally introduce the namesake of the book so notice something important while Ezra is almost invariably spoken of as being pivotal in the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple, in fact, he came to Judah long after it was completed and in an operation. Now let me give you an easy marker to get the sense of the timing here. The temple was completed around 35 or 40 years before the time of Esther. And Ezra came to Jerusalem about 20 years after the story of Esther and Mordecai saving the Jews of the Persian Empire from genocide at the hands of the evil Haman. You know what you're supposed to do with that. There you go. (laughs) Darius was the king when the temple was completed. Xerxes was the king at the time of Esther and now Xerxes' son Artaxerxes is the king when Ezra finally immigrates to Judah. So a lot of time has passed since the temple was rebuilt and put back into operation. Lots has gone on in the Persian Empire and there's been plenty of time for the zealousness for purity and worship and lifestyle of the Jews in Judah to deteriorate and it has so the real purpose for Ezra coming to Judah is not at all connected with rebuilding the temple rather Ezra is the leader of a reform movement to restore the proper worship of God the proper observance of priestly ritual in the temple and the proper obedience of priests and lay Jews to the Torah of God instead of to the many man-made doctrines of convenience and tolerance that had grown up in Judah as an accommodation to the Gentiles who had lived in and around Judah and, of course, to the Persian government. Chapter 7 begins with a substantial genealogy of Ezra. Let's talk about that for a minute, because it is typical of biblical genealogies, this one is, including that of our Messiah, Yeshua. Notice how it begins by saying that Ezra is the son of Sariah. And then it continues with a list of more than a dozen additional son-of names. And since Aaron is the final name on this list and Eleazar is the second to the last, Eleazar is indeed one of Aaron's sons, what we immediately learn is that the point of all this is to show that Ezra is a legitimate priest. Only Aaron's son Eleazar can represent the priestly line his other sons, Aaron's other sons produced what the Bible calls Levites who are non-priests but they are qualified to be temple blue collar workers however Aaron lived 800 years before Ezra so it's obvious that far more than 16 generations mentioned here came and went during that long time period in fact Ezra is not the biological son of Sariah, as this genealogy would seem to claim. You see, Sariah lived before the Babylonian exile. And this of itself proves that Ezra could not have been his son, at least not as we think of son in the Western world. Almost certainly the point of listing Sariah was to show which branch of the priestly line that Ezra belonged to. Thus there are a couple of important things for us to understand. First is that son of Ben, in Hebrew, has a much more expansive meaning in the Bible than how we use that term today. That is, in modern times, a son is only one generation apart from his biological father. He's the next generation. But in ancient times, the term more meant descended from. Thus, it was especially common in biblical genealogy to use son of Ben when referring to a relationship between a Bible character and his grandfather. And that is because the ancients tended to live in large, extended family units and especially in the Middle East because the elder male was considered the unquestioned leader and the authority in that family. He was also the living patriarch to whom all those born into the household, into that family, were seen as connected to and that's who they were to be identified with. So the point is, That in modern times, you see, we see genealogy as this exact science that is incomplete and full of gaps if we can't list every single generation from us to as far back as we're trying to go in our family history. But to the ancient Hebrews, a genealogy was purpose-driven. And so the list could vary slightly depending on what it was trying to convey to the reader. Thus many Bible commentators, especially liberal and the high critical academics, they will accuse the Bible, the biblical genealogy list as being either inaccurate or simply fabricated because they skip generations and they call someone son of when there's no way that person could have been the direct father to the person being called his son and this is what happens when we try to stuff the modern western mindset back into the Bible essentially Christian scholars have for centuries decided that the Bible ought to conform to modern western literary and societal structure or the passages are simply wrong and they need to be reinterpreted And why do they do this? Because the Hebrew origins of the Bible is not something they want. And so, to try to understand the Bible in its original Hebrew context is seen as either irrelevant or maybe even a danger to our new Gentile New Testament faith. Sariah was either Ezra's great or maybe even great great grandfather. And the purpose of taking this particular genealogical list back to Eleazar and then his father Aaron was to establish Ezra's priestly credentials, not who his biological parents were, nor where he stood as regards rights of inheritance, nor whether he was even a firstborn, nor for any other reason. This general understanding that I just gave to you about how Hebrew genealogical lists work applies to all genealogies in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. A complete genealogy without gaps is rare. And when we do find it, it's only going to cover a very few generations. The name Ezra... Itself is actually a contraction. In the same way that Yeshua is a contraction of Yehoshua, Ezra is a contraction of Azariah, and it means the Lord has helped. Ezra represents a critical transitional figure in the progress of Judah much the same way that Samuel had been so many years earlier. See, Samuel was a one-of-a-kind hybrid prophet, priest, and judge who ushered in the era of the kings by anointing Saul as the first king of Israel. What we're soon going to learn about Ezra is that he was a unique kind of Of priest plus Torah teacher. Why is that so important? Why do we need to know that? Because this helps to reveal one aspect of the formative days of the new religion of the Jews, Judaism. Now I'm not going to review because it would take too long, but recall that what today we call Judaism actually began in Babylon and then really began to take firm root in Persia. The exiled Jews, without a temple or a priesthood, and thus no way to be ritually cleansed, nor could they have their sins atoned for, nor could they observe any law of the Torah that involved the temple or sacrifice, well, they began to devise their own ways around the problem. Houses of worship and prayer and fellowship that in time became known as synagogues were established. Non-priests, or at least non-practicing priests typically were the leaders of these synagogues. What did they teach? It's not clear. But what is clear is that by the time of Esther the Jews in Persia weren't much interested in and had very little familiarity with the laws of Moses. Moses. When Ezra returned now, we're well after Esther's era. The people who had returned to Judah had little idea of what was contained in God's word. Even though the temple had now been in operation, reestablished, for almost 60 years. And the priesthood was functioning in some fashion. The notion That had been brought back with the Jews from their exile was that they had the latitude to kind of make it up as they go, and it had become a permanent part of Jewish society. It was the priests whose God given duty it was to teach the people His Torah, no one else had that authority. But in the person of Ezra, we have a non-practicing priest whose chosen ambition became devotion to Torah study and Torah teaching. So we find the beginnings here now of an office or a, a class of people who had religious authority who were not attached to the temple as serving priests. Yet somehow they became the supreme authorities and teachers of God's word and of his law. See, in Christ's day, we hear of the scribes and of the Pharisees and of the Torah teachers, and these were the accepted authorities of Judaism, when it came to the knowledge of the law and of the scriptures in general. But as Judaism progressed and it became more and more tradition based and less and less holy scripture based we see the emergence of the rabbis. And while even today the rabbis refer to themselves as Torah teachers and their disciples as Torah students, in fact, they're not usually studying Scripture. But instead, they're studying and beholden to the Talmud and to Halakha. Halakha. Rabbinical law. Rabbinical law of traditional Judaism. And because whether Jew or Gentile, we're all humans, and we're all subject to the same frailties and temptations, Christianity veered off onto the same path as Judaism until today, Christianity is less and less about God's word and more and more about accepting each denomination's doctrines and traditions. It's the same. So Ezra was a wise and skilled expert in the law of Moses. He operated outside of the priesthood And he apparently lived in the city of Babel, where there was a great concentration of Jews who had chosen to remain up to that point in Babylon and not migrate back to their historic homeland. Later, we're going to find out that Ezra's cohort, Nehemiah, would come from the city of Susa, the Persian government capital. Apparently, Ezra was some sort of a recognized leader and authority or the king of Persia would have had no reason to become involved with his return to Jerusalem since no permission was needed for Jews to migrate to Judah. Rather, it is clear that Ezra wanted and needed royal authority to go to Jerusalem in order to assume a role of religious authority over the Jewish population and over the temple. After all, Judah already had a Jewish governor. They already had a high priest. So upon Ezra's appearance, there was going to be competition and rivalry to control the temple and to guide the Jewish people. Whatever it was that he asked the king for, the king granted it to him in writing so that few would want to challenge him. Now, Ezra didn't go home alone. Like with Zerubbabel, so many years earlier, because he was a leader of some stature, he was able to assemble an entourage to go with him. And not surprisingly, since Ezra was of of, uh, certified priestly bloodlines, he recruited priests and Levites of various job duties to go back to Judah with him. And while the words aren't here to say so, no doubt, essentially what Ezra was doing was taking a hand-picked team with him that he intended on taking over the temple operations with. People that would be loyal to him, to his teachings, not to the priests who were currently running the temple operations. Now history tells us That this was quite a dangerous time in this part of the empire. Egypt was in full rebellion against Artaxerxes and the highways were risky to travel on. This is why we hear in verse 9, we hear the statement that God's good hand was upon him. Ezra made it to Judah safely when he easily could have been attacked by rebels along the way. He started his journey, we're told, in the seventh year of Artaxerxes' reign, 458 B.C., on the first day of the first month of the year. The first month is Nisan. And what happens in Nisan? Passover. He left from the city of Babel and did not arrive in Jerusalem until the first day of the fifth month. Exactly a four-month journey. Now we're going to find out later that he was slightly delayed, could have got there a little bit sooner, I guess, due to difficulty recruiting some Levites that he felt were needed. Now verse 10 begins with the words, "For Ezra had set his heart on studying and practicing the Torah of Adonai. Several things I want to come on to uh, comment on to bring today's lesson to a conclusion. First, as with our brief Hebrew grammar lesson near the beginning of the talk today, this verse begins with the connecting word, key. So, the idea is that the reason that in verse 9, God's good hand was upon Ezra so that it gave him traveling mercies to arrive safely in Jerusalem was because Ezra had set his heart on God's Torah both to learn it and to live it. See, that little word, key, can have a large effect on how we understand Holy Scripture. And so we see that God's assurance of safe travel And Ezra's sincere intent to study and to live by God's Torah was a cause-and-effect scenario. And this is something that modern-day believers need to take to heart. As much as the Western Church seems to be deathly afraid of carrying out God's commandments as our obligation of good works in case it might be construed as legalism, in fact, the biblical promise promise of divine blessing upon us is contingent on our doing the good works that God's laws prescribe. Naturally, it must all come from a sincere trust and love for the Lord, but nonetheless, tangibly doing His will as opposed to just knowing it is a natural part of our relationship with Him. Second is that while the Hebrew word lev is properly translated here to heart, remember, as we've discussed numerous times, that when the term heart is used in the Bible it means something entirely different than what it means to modern Westerners. See, we've adopted a meaning for heart as an indication of feelings and emotions. However, in the Bible the heart has nothing to do with feelings and emotions it's referring to our intellects. And this is because until around the 4th century AD it was generally believed that the heart organ was where human thought took place. Matter of fact, it was the liver and the kidneys where it was deemed that our various emotions resided. So a much better English translation would be that Ezra set his mind instead of his heart on studying and practicing God's Torah. And finally... It is important to understand that this verse is telling us that Ezra was not merely a student of God's Word, but most clearly he was a person who practiced what he preached. He didn't study for the sake of occupation or for mental exercise or to acquire a vocation or a position of authority. He studied because he trusted God. And in my opinion, he compared what was being practiced as the Jewish religion of that era, earliest Judaism, to what the Torah actually said. And he knew something was amiss. He wanted to know the truth so that he could do it. He didn't want to learn and practice a bunch of doctrines and traditions that had, a, had, had an aura of piousness but were far from God's commandments and principles. H.G.M. Williamson in his commentary on the book of Torah said it all most eloquently. He, Ezra, is a model reformer in that what he taught, he first lived. And what he lived he first made sure of in the scriptures. With study, conduct, and teaching put deliberately in this right order, each of these then was able to function properly at its best. Study was saved from unreality, conduct from uncertainty, and teaching from insincerity and shallowness. We'll continue with chapter 7 next week.